Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Mankind fell and I've heard people describe it like this, they fell from grace. Can I tell you they didn't fall from grace, they fell into. How is it do you think that if God is all powerful and good that he can't stop bad things from happening? To answer that question, Dr. Corbett looks at what we know about God and what we know about humanity. Tonight, the message is titled, Do to Her As She Has Done. Let's join him now. You're aware that Jeremiah has been taken, not necessarily uh, compliantly, down to Egypt, even though he warned the Jews not to go down to Egypt after Babylon had been destroyed. He told them, stay in the city and this is where you'll be safe. And they refused to believe him because circumstances certainly did not look like they would be safe. And as we've seen, the city was in ruins. There was smouldering ashes and flames everywhere. And it certainly didn't look like a place where you would be safe. But that was what Jeremiah had told them to do. And they did not do it. So they've taken Jeremiah down to Egypt against his will. And here we now have Jeremiah, possibly weeks, maybe months before he dies, being killed in the very thing that he said would happen if you go down to Egypt. This is a different Jeremiah. And part of my goal here today is as we look at the background of the issue involved in this passage, that you will leave here with a song in your heart, quite literally, a song in your heart. And, and I hope that, that from this point on in your life, a song of praise to God will be just always on the tip of your tongue and in your heart. We're reading from verse 8. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, which I strongly recommend. And this is what it says. Flee from the midst of Babylon and go out from the land of the Chaldeans and be as male goats before the flock. For behold, I'm stirring up and bringing against Babylon a gathering of great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be taken. Their arrows are like a skilled warrior who does not return empty-handed. Chaldea shall be plundered. All who plunder her shall be sated, declares the Lord. Though you rejoice, though you exult, O plunderers of my heritage, though you frolic like a heifer in the pasture and neigh like stallions, your mother shall be utterly shamed. She who bore you shall be disgraced. Behold, she shall be the last of the nations, a wilderness, a dry land, a desert, because of the wrath of the Lord who shall not be inhabited, but shall be in utter desolation. Everyone who passes by Babylon shall be appalled and hiss because of all her wounds. Set yourselves in array against Babylon all around. All you who bend the bow, shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Verse 15, raise a shout against her all around. She has surrendered. Her bulwarks have fallen, her walls are thrown down, for this is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her, do to her as she has done. And that's what this message is called. Do to her as she has done. Cut off from Babylon the sower, the one who handles the sickle in the time of harvest because of the sword of the oppressor. Everyone shall turn to his own people and everyone shall flee to his own land. Now, this is a remarkable prophecy because, as I've mentioned, as Jeremiah has turned his attention to, to the nation of Babylon, the nation of Babylon was the world power. 
Th- these guys were, were unstoppable. They were, they were the emperors of the world. And here's Jeremiah at the, almost the height of Babylon's power, declaring that in a, in, a, in a very short time, within the time that the Jews are in captivity, and he's already said in Jeremiah uh, 29 how long that would be. We know that they were to be in captivity for 70 years. He says within that time, Babylon will fall. And they did. We read that in the book of Daniel. So that's some of the background to that passage. And here is God saying of Babylon that he's going to orchestrate their downfall. Now, this should cause us to go, hang on a minute. Didn't God raise up Babylon? And the answer is, yes, he did. Didn't the prophet say that God had raised up Babylon as his instrument to bring judgment on his people? Yes, he had then why are they being judged for doing the will of God? And this is what we call a conundrum. It's, I guess people might call it almost paradoxical. How can it be that God would decree something and, 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 and they follow that decree and then they're judged for following that decree? How does that work? And so I want to... Having established that passage and what Jeremiah said would happen to Babylon, and it's, it, it seems to be fairly graphic language that Babylon would fall, I want, to, I want to ask this question. If God is all sovereign, then how can anyone be held accountable for their sin? You see, if he has said of Babylon, go and destroy my people, and they do, and now he says, now that you've destroyed my people, For this wickedness, I will punish you. I will hold you to account. This has caused some people to go, this God is a megalomaniac. This God is is so confusing. How can we honestly think this God is a good God? And that raises this next issue and issues like it. If God is all-powerful and good, assuming he's all-powerful and he's all good, then why can't he stop bad things from happening. (laughs) Now, I laugh because how many times have I asked this? You know, hang on a minute. I tithed last week. This isn't fair. What's going on, God? God, why, why me? Why are things going wrong in my life? You're supposed to be a good God. I mean, you could have stopped this after all. So we, this is, this is stuff that's, Yes, it's in the the annals of Scripture, but let's explore this, shall we? Because this is a life issue. And if if, if you want to have a relationship with anyone, anyone, you've got to learn to trust them. You've got to learn who they are. You've got to learn their heart. And, and I think one of the, some of the most da- well, I think one of the most dangerous relationship questions you could ever ask is, "Don't you trust me?" I, I think. I would hear warning bells if that is being asked because, because trust is one of those things that develops and it's earned and it's compounding. And I hope today to compound you with trust in God. I hope today to give you good reasons not to doubt that God is both all-powerful and all-good. To do that we need to maybe come back to some basic things about God. 
What do we know about God? And I am talking really fundamental, basic stuff. What do we know about God? I think this is the first thing we know about God. He is sovereign. And we might, you might not have heard this word, so let me sort of unpack this word for you. I've got a little definition under there. He is sovereign, and it's this. His will is always done. His will is always done. His will is always done. That's what it means to be sovereign. Now, there's words that are used in, in, in the titles and names of God that sum that thought up. And, and the most common one is L-O-R-D. And, and in your Bibles, you'll usually have it, capital L, small capital. If you have a look in, say, Verse 15, verse 13, I can see it straight away. Verse 13, it's capital L, cap, small caps, O-R-D. So it's not like capital L, lowercase O-R-D. And what the, what the translator is trying to tell you there is, he is sovereign God. And there's a word that's being used in the Hebrew that was unpronounceable. So we can't even really take it from Hebrew and put it into English because it just, it just hasn't got any vowels and it doesn't make sense to the English ear. So the translator has said, every time I use this capital L, small caps, O-R-D, it means sovereign God. That's, there's a Hebrew word, if you, if you really want to know, the way Hebrew scholars say it is Yahweh. He is sovereign. He always has his will. Now right there, we could just pronounce the benediction, because that should cause you to go, if that's true, then he's worthy of worship. And I agree with you. Thank you for entering into my sermon. That is exactly right. If that is true, we should almost fall out of our chairs, onto our knees. Some of us need to fall onto our faces, because if that's true, this should inspire worship. Just that point. He is Lord. And so when Jesus Christ said the last thing he said to his disciples before ascending is, all authority on heaven and earth has now been given to me. He established that he was sovereign. So this is the first thing we know about God. Here's a verse out of Isaiah that says this, and this is what he says, I am the Lord, declaring the end from the beginning. Now this is, a, this is the nature of prophecy. You see, God declares, and as we've been looking at in the book of Jeremiah, he declared in detail what would happen over weeks, months, years, and decades. And we, as we've been going through Jeremiah, we've been going, tick, yep, that happened, tick, that happened, tick, that happened. And we know that even after Jeremiah died, which happens within a very short period of time of him giving his prophecy, we can then pick up his story in Habakkuk and Daniel, and we can go, yep, that's what... In fact, Daniel, Daniel chapter 9 says, I was reading the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah and I realised this had now been fulfilled. So we can see God indeed declares the beginning or the end from the beginning. He does it. It's not that he's guessing. And some people who, who can't imagine that God is so much bigger than us say, well, maybe God just knows the future and he declares it. But if you have a look at this verse, that is not what Isaiah is saying. It's not that he just, I've been to the future, I've come back, and I'll let me tell you what happens. This is not how God's doing it. He says, I declare it. In fact, here's the word that I'm going to be very intentional with. He decrees. 
He decrees certain things. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now, that's pretty emphatic. If that was the only Bible verse we had, we would have to go, He's sovereign. He really is the capital L, small caps, O-R-D. He really is in control. My purpose will be accomplished. What else do we know about God in response to the question? Number two, he is beneficent. He is good. Bene, good. Facent, really good (laughs) because it means bountifully good but it's beyond bountifully good it's not that just that he's a you know I could say Eloise is a good girl and it's true it's true but if Eloise walked in here and decided you know what I've saved up twenty thousand dollars and I've decided that I'm going to give everyone in the church a hundred dollars as they leave today that would be bountifully good because none of us deserve it. And she's being bountiful. There's just a thought for someone, just by the way. No, but that's what bountifully it means. It means to be abundantly generous. It means to be so good that even when you are wronged, you are still generous and kind to those who've wronged you. God is beneficent. Beautiful word. And we can see in Scripture... For example, Psalm 119, verse 68, it says this, You are good and do good. And we could well put in, you only do good. You are good and you only do good. Teach me your statutes or teach me how to be like that. (laughs) You are good, you only do good. Teach me to be like that. And we all should pray that prayer, I suggest. We all need to be good like God. When Jesus was asked the question after someone said, good teacher, whoa, 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 whoa. What was the question he immediately asked? Why do you call me good? And the Jehovah's Witnesses would say, yeah, too right he asked that question because he wasn't God. When in fact it was an invitation for the person asking the question to say, well, duh, I'm calling you good because you're God in the flesh. I mean, John 1, 1 plainly says so, is what this person could have said, recorded in the Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> that was a joke, by the way. I was just tracking John 1, 1. It wasn't written by the... Anyway, it's like early. All right, so what do we know about man? What do we know about mankind? Well, this is, again, it's pretty basic stuff. None of this is going to go, whoa, gee, I didn't know that. You should all know this. Number one, he was originally, we, man, mankind, I mean, in the generic sense, not the identity, whatever you like sense, in the generic sense of man, he was originally created good. Mankind was originally created good. Genesis 1.27 says that God created man, mankind, clearly mankind in the context, as you'll see from the last half of this verse, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So we know that mankind was originally good. Now, if God was good, and man was created in his image, man was originally beneficent, able to do good, be good, and be bountifully good. That was how we were created. But there's a a second thing we know, that mankind, our four parents, 
Adam and Eve plunged the human race into sin. They chose to rebel. Now here's the, the thing that we were created beneficent, we were created good, we rebelled and not all of that beneficence has left. We still have the capacity for good. That's how you can have even someone who claims not to know God, care about God, stop and render help to someone who needs help immediately because there is a, there is a goodness in each of us, in each human being. You can't eradicate it completely. It's there even without turning to God. But it's when you do turn to God that he's able to give you a closer nature to what you were created to have in the first place. We read in Genesis 3, 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and you remember this comes on the heels of where Satan has entered in through the form of a serpent and come into the Garden of Eden and spoken with the woman, which is a really interesting insight that originally mankind enjoyed what appears to be almost a Narnian relationship with, with the animal kingdom. It's a, an amazing ability to communicate with creation. And here's the serpent speaking with the woman and the, the, she doesn't think that's odd at all, which paints a beautiful picture of what the world would have originally been like. And and why don't you eat of this fruit? Well, we can't eat of this fruit because God has said the moment we eat of this, and she actually added something to it, which is interesting, or touch it, which God didn't say, and that's what legalism does. It adds a greater burden than God actually imposes. We shall die. And the serpent says, you won't die, for God himself knows that in the day you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, which was crazy because they were already like God. And that's what Satan offers. Nothing. And it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. By the way, I reckon it was about then that, that the fall happened. It already happened. The rest was just detail. Picking that fruit off the tree and eating it was just detail. Because she, she fixed her eyes on it, it had filled her mind. And that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. In other words, standing right beside her. <laughs> Not like... She said, just wait here, Satan, I'll just go and grab my husband. He was standing right there. Now, the husband's role is occasionally to get, to get your wife back on track. Oh, man, it wears me out sometimes. But you have to, that's, the husband should have done that. Darn it, I forgot Kim was sitting right there. Normally she's out there. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> Adam should have stepped up and said, hang on a minute, Eve. This is not right that we even talk to this critter. Let's, let's not even look at the tree. Let's not our hearts be fixed on it. Let's just walk away from it. That's what should have happened. It didn't happen. And so mankind fell. And I've heard people describe it like this. They fell from grace. Can I tell you they didn't fall from grace? They fell into grace. Whenever you sin, you don't fall from grace. You fall into grace. Thank God. They fell from perfection. And we are all a party to that fall. What else do we know about mankind? 
that mankind's choice to fall has introduced evil to the world. So, so the, the, the things like uh, uh, animal attacks on human beings, things like weather patterns that, that bring and wreak havoc, this is what we might call natural evil, but all these things apparently didn't happen before this happened and there was a breaking of fellowship. When mankind fell from perfection, they broke fellowship immediately with God. They broke fellowship in, in a degree with each other. They broke fellowship with that kind of Narnian relationship they had with the animal kingdom. And they broke fellowship with themselves. So that now, they, as it says, their eyes were open. They, they began to experience things they'd never experienced before. Guilt and shame being the two primary things. And we know that because the next verse says, Then God came down in the cool of the day, and Adam and Eve hid. And that's what shame does. Shame causes us to hide. Mankind has sinned. And did God decree for that? Did God de decree that mankind would sin in the Garden of Eden? Well, this is what we know about God and his relationship to mankind. And the question we've got to ask is, how has man's rebellion impacted God's sovereignty? I mean, after all, if God gets what he wants, as the prophet Isaiah says, his purpose will be accomplished. Did God decree that mankind would fall and sin? Did he decree that? The immediate answer to that is scripture doesn't answer that question. It answers a different question. And this is the question it answers. And how we can answer this question, how has man's rebellion impacted God's sovereignty? This is what we see from scripture. God now uses rebellious man as his sovereign instruments to curb man's rebellion. And ultimately, because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, we're all suffering because of it. The reality is now God is able, because he sent Jesus Christ, to deal with sin and evil and, and defeat it. Okay. I want to give you... Uh, hold this thought. God now uses rebellious man as his, in, as his sovereign instruments to curb man's rebellion. Have you ever been pulled over by a policeman when you've done the wrong thing in your motor vehicle? And that policeman has pointed out to you that you've done the wrong thing and yet that policeman was a sinner? It's gone awful quiet, apart from my wife. Of course, we, the, those that God uses, and it says in Romans 13 that those who bear the sword bear the sword on behalf of God. He's talking about the Romans. These, these guys were horrible. And yet God says, I've I'm using these people to curb unrighteousness, to curb rebellion, to curb wickedness. So we can see this in, in Scripture that God does it. And I want to give you a, a big verse of Scripture to support that in just a moment. But before we do, we need to explore the will of God. I've heard people say that there's two types of God's will, God's perfect will and God's permitted will. I can't really see that in Scripture. But what I can see is a different two types of God's will, and it's this, God's desired and God's decreed will. There are certain things that God wills in the sense that he desires. 
And there are other things that God says, I'm just going to make sure it happens. Let me give you an example. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, if that's God's desired will, does that mean that it will happen? Well, some actually read it and say, yeah, everyone's saved, they just don't know it. But I don't think that's what Paul's saying, especially since he's saying, therefore go out and preach and plead with people so that they will turn to God. If they already had turned to God and didn't know it, Paul would not be telling Timothy, go out and preach so that they will. So here we have this, God has a desire that people will turn to him. And the question is, will they? Well, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, no. In fact, according to Jesus, most won't. Most would rather choose a broad, easy path that leads to destruction than turn to him and come on a straight and narrow path that at times can be just downright difficult. So there's God's desired will, and we've already established God's decreed will, as we've seen in Isaiah. And this is why it's important not just to take one verse of Scripture, but to take the balance of Scripture So this is what we know about when people do the wrong thing and when bad things happen. You see, the next time, not if, but when something goes wrong, something bad happens to you, it's my pastoral prayer for you, it's my pastoral hope for you, it's my pastoral ambition that rather than you have a clenched fist raised to God and screaming out, why? that you will have an open palm, doubly lifted to God, and go, God, I don't understand why, but I know that you're good and I worship you. That's my pastoral ambition for you. And so this is what we see, that when God decrees to use the actions of rebellious men for his glory, he still holds the rebellious to account. Now, you might go, well, Pastor, I don't understand that. Well, I'm not sure I understand it either, but I can see it. I see it in Scripture. I see that God says to Babylon, who are wicked, and this is, of course, if you've read the book of Habakkuk, this this is what the whole book is about. Babylon, the the prophet Habakkuk says to God, when, when, when God tells Habakkuk, tell my people, the same people Jeremiah is talking to, I'm going to send the Babylonians to judge you. And Habakkuk goes, thus says the Lord, he is going to send the Babylonians to... Just hang on a minute. God, can we just have a... And that's the whole, that's the whole book of Habakkuk. God, I don't get... What? Hey, what? They're more wicked than us. How can you use wicked, rebellious people to judge us? Our wickedness, our rebellions, nothing compared to them. And that's a... By the way, that was a really wrong perspective because when you know God and then choose to rebel, that's far more wicked than not knowing God and choosing to rebel. So Habakkuk's perspective was a little bit wrong, but it's interesting where Habakkuk lands because he realises as God doesn't answer his question, he challenges Habakkuk to trust him. And this is where Habakkuk writes that verse, the just shall live by faith. 
which is the word trust. Father, I pray indeed that a song of worship would come into our mouths and into our hearts, that, Lord, when stuff happens, we would know that you are beneficent, you are good. And, Father, I pray for those here today who have never surrendered to you, they've never come to that point of recognising that you're beneficent and they're not. They've ne- they haven't come to that point where they realise that try as hard as they like, they can't get rid of the guilt, they can't get rid of the shame, they can't get rid of that sense of emptiness. And that, Lord, today, because you are beneficently good, you are opening your arms wide to these people and saying, come to me. I want to forgive you. I want to heal your heart. I want to restore you. I want to take away the past and wash you from it and give you a brand new start. Will you please turn to me? And that's what God is inviting you to do today. Perhaps you've never given your life to Jesus. I want to invite you to do it right now. You need to give your life to Jesus. Heaven is real. Hell is hot. And eternity is an awful long time. And you go to one of either place, depending on what you do in this moment. Will you surrender to Jesus? If you will, will you pray this prayer? Jesus, I come to you. I give you my life. So God can use even the rebellious as instruments of his purpose. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, Do To Her As She Has Done, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.